Okay, so I was watching uh, an interview this week uh, with a writer called Hubert Selby Jr. He wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for a Dream, if you've heard of either of them. Uh, they're both very dark novels. Uh, they explore pretty much the darkest parts of the human condition and experience. There was one bit where the interviewer asked him, why do you write novels from such a dark place? Uh, where do all your works find this attraction to this darkness? And he responded with this. He said, when you have this awareness of anything internally, you perceive that externally. If I remember correctly, the word I has a Sanskrit root that means fountain. In other words, the I isn't an organ that's receiving vibrations from what's out there and going through the brain and interpreting. It's a projector. We project the world we live in. And it seems to me that if I have such an inner awareness of darkness, that's what I'm going to perceive. Now, I can't comment on the etymology or psychology or ophthalmology of that statement, uh, but I think, regardless, there's something profound in there either way. That we can look at the world with such a loaded or skewed vision that we can't really see what's right in front of us. But instead, we see what's in our hearts all around us. And I think that's what's happening this evening as we look into our passage, because this evening we're going to see there are signs everywhere pointing to who Jesus is, but people can't see them. These signs, objectively, they're pretty clear, pretty obvious, but the people in these stories can't see them. All they can see is their own desires, their own pride, their own expectations, so they can't really see Jesus at all. That's what we're going to see this evening. Uh, we're going to see that in three signs pointing to who Jesus is. We're going to see the sign of the bread, the sign of the times, and the sign of the sun. So first up, the sign of the bread. Uh, where we start out in our passage, it says, moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's not really clear from Matthew, uh, but just looking at this map here, in the sort of topish, rightish, uh, the Sea of Galilee, you'll see there are two ways someone could pass along the Sea of Galilee. They could pass along the western side in Galilee, which was a very Jewish area, or they could pass along the eastern side in the Decapolis, which means ten cities. There were ten cities that was a very Gentile, non-Jewish area. And Matthew doesn't spell it out for us, but thankfully Mark does in his account. He says, Jesus went through the region of the Decapolis. Uh, so we know he was in a Gentile area when this happened. Uh, but I think even without Matthew spelling that out for us, I think we're meant to pick that up anyway. Uh, let me explain. So just before this story last week, if you remember, Sam went through that passage about the Gentile woman begging for Jesus' help. Jesus told her he came for the lost sheep of Israel. Uh, she pleaded with him and he granted her mercy because of her great faith. This woman obviously was a Gentile. Uh, she received mercy. Then next thing, Jesus went up a mountain, sat down there. Then we hear something pretty unexpected. Remember, we're on a mountain. It says, uh, large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. Uh, that's what it says. Good. Now, of course, none of these people could have come here alone. Uh, they couldn't have. This, they would have had to be helped up this mountain by their loved ones, friends, family. This was a long time before uh, wheelchairs or motorized scooters. 
So these crowds, the people themselves and their family and friends, they would have all been exhausted from this journey up the mountain. And so, of course, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. And he heals them. Then what does it say? It says, the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. So what should we assume from that last, last bit there? They gave glory to the God of Israel. Well, if they were Israelites, they wouldn't have given glory to the God of Israel. They would have just given glory to God. It's only noteworthy that it's the God of Israel if they weren't Jewish, if they had other gods who they had been worshipping. But this is a picture of Jesus' kingdom, of new life, restoration for a new people. But his kingdom isn't fully here yet because their bodies aren't fully restored, they're still broken. So Jesus says, I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. So considering what the disciples have just seen Jesus do last chapter, what should they say? Well, maybe, oh yeah, we just watched you feed thousands of people from nothing. We're going to trust that you can do that again. Uh, But instead, they say, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? It's like finding Nemo and Jesus has 12 dories following him around here. Now remember a few weeks ago when he fed the 5,000 people from nothing, that miracle they actually watched and participated in by handing out the food, it seems to have uh, not crossed their mind when this situation comes again. But I think for us it's a bit easy to go after the disciples uh, because they're so quick to forget what Jesus has done for them until we come into a crisis in our lives And our first thought is, where could a solution possibly come from? When you look back and you think, yeah, of course, God, he's been so kind and so generous to me so many times. But then you look forward and you think, but I'm not sure he's going to be kind and generous to me this time. It's so easy to do and it's kind of refreshing that we're actually not alone in that. And it's comforting that Jesus is patient with people just like us and he turns up when they need him regardless. So again, Jesus, he asked the disciples to check their baskets. They have seven loaves, a few fish, and you know the drill. He takes the loaves and the fish, gives thanks, breaks them, gives them to the disciples, they hand them out, they collect the leftovers, seven baskets full. Seven loaves became seven leftover baskets. Now, I don't want to go all numerology on you, but uh, remember they're in a Gentile region from Mark's Gospel, and here when it said they gave glory to the God of Israel. Uh, But I actually think there's another hint there of this in the number of leftover baskets. In the Jewish feeding of the 5,000, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, it said there were 12 baskets left over, think the 12 tribes of Israel. And here there are seven baskets left over, think seven being the number of completion in the Bible this is a picture of the completion of God's people outside Israel, the nations, being brought into Jesus' kingdom, a picture of what would one day be a people of every tribe and tongue and language worshipping Jesus together. Just before this story, we heard about Jesus having mercy on that Canaanite woman and she begged him for some of the crumbs under the table to the dogs of the Gentiles. And now 
we see the dam walls absolutely burst open, a crowd of thousands of Gentiles being fed a lot more than just crumbs. They're being satisfied with abundance, the same blessing that Jesus gave the Jewish crowds. And I think that's kind of the point, that jarring similarity between these two stories, between that feeding of the 5,000 and this story, I think that is kind of the point, because there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. They're both met with the same compassion and provision from Jesus' hand. Then in the final verse of chapter 15, we read that after dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So then Jesus, he crosses the Sea of Galilee back to the Jewish area. So what should we expect? If this is how the uh, Gentile crowds desperately seek and worship Jesus, how much more the Jewish people, especially the Jewish leaders... Well, we might be surprised as we look at the sign of the times. After I have a quick sip. Pardon me. Okay. Sign of the times, start of chapter 16. So Jesus is back on the west side, the Jewish side of the lake. And we move from the embrace of the Gentile crowds to the opposition of the Jewish leaders. Because as soon as he steps off the boat, it says the Pharisees and Sadducees approach and test him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now these two groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were normally sworn enemies. They didn't get along at all because they had different theology, particularly about the resurrection. But they joined forces here to become a Jewish religious leader supergroup, the Fadducees. But I guess... They were on the wrong side of the lake because they're asking Jesus for a sign. He just showed a sure sign to thousands and thousands of people, if on the other side, the Gentile side of the lake. But more to the point, they were on the wrong side of God. Because it's pretty clear at this point, even if Jesus walked back to them on water with thousands of loaves of bread in his arms, they still wouldn't have believed. But still, they asked for a sign. And Matthew, he's not an objective reporter about this. He knows they're doing it to test Jesus, not because they're genuinely seeking Jesus. They were never looking for a sign from God. They were just trying to find one more reason to justify their unbelief. Then we read Jesus had compassion on them. No, we don't. We read they asked for a sign from heaven and Jesus answers by talking about the weather and Jonah. He says, you've learned to read the skies, red sky at night, shepherds delight, all that stuff. You can read the physical signs, the patterns in creation. You can tell where they're pointing, but you can't read the spiritual signs. You're standing next to a signpost pointing to the Messiah, and you're still saying that you're completely lost. I think it's meant to be more than a little bit comical. I mean, what's Jesus been doing the last few chapters? He's been doing sign after sign after sign, and then... They still want one more. But instead, Jesus, he tells them, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. So we just went through Jonah a few months ago, if you remember. Uh, So what, what is it about that little prophet in a big fish? What is it about that story that is meant to be a sign to them? Well, thankfully, Jesus has already kind of told us uh, in chapter 12, 
he said, this might sound a little bit familiar, uh, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That's the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, then he he rose to miraculous life, so will I, Jesus says. That's the only sign that you're going to get my death and resurrection. Which should, if they had eyes to see, have been the only sign that they needed. But then we hear a splashing behind us and we look around and see the disciples, they've caught up and they've forgotten to take bread. I guess the seven baskets of leftovers were probably still sitting on the opposite shore. Uh, But they find Jesus, and obviously Jesus is still fired up because of the conversation he just had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says to them, watch out because of the leaven of the, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So leaven is yeast, basically. So just like his disciples, Jesus is thinking about bread as well. But again, Jesus is misunderstood. His spiritual words are mistaken for physical words because the disciples form a huddle. They start discussing amongst themselves, we didn't bring any bread. The disciples are thinking, oh no, he mentioned yeast. This must be some kind of passive-aggressive comment about how we forgot the bread. Oh gosh, if even the Pharisees have bread, Jesus is going to be so mad at us. Of course, Jesus, he knows what they're talking about, knows what they're thinking, and he says... You of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves that you do not have bread? Again, the little faith. Again, a moment of a great spiritual reality before them, but they're not able to see it. And so Jesus says, don't you understand yet? Don't you remember those two feeding miracles that just happened one after another? I just fed tens of thousands of people from nothing, and you're still worried about not having enough bread. But regardless, it's not about the bread. Why is it that you don't understand when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread. The yeast gets in the dough and it spreads throughout the whole loaf. Beware of their hard-heartedness spreading throughout your hearts. Beware of their yeast, of the influence of those who never feel like Jesus has done enough for them who always want more, even when Jesus is holding out the bread of life, beware of those who are never satisfied with Jesus, that they don't, their attitudes don't creep into your hearts as well. So that's the second sign. We've seen the sign of the bread, Jesus feeding the Gentile crowds, just like he fed the Jewish crowds. We've seen the signs of the times, where Jesus was alarmed that Jewish leaders can see the signs of the weather but not read the spiritual signs right in front of them. Now finally, we get the sign of the sun. Where Jesus and his disciples are on the move again, if we look at the map again, straight north of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see Caesarea Philippi. It says that's where they're heading. So it's a fair walk. Uh, It would have been many days of walking. Uh, On that long walk, they were no doubt talking about everything that they'd seen over the past few months. Then we enter the conversation just as Jesus says, who do people say 
that the Son of Man is. What's the word on the grapevine? What's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? Now, we've heard a bunch of these answers already uh, throughout Matthew. Uh, the, the disciples kind of catalogue the main ones. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And notice no one is saying he's just a teacher or a spiritual leader who promotes love and tolerance. Even if people were way off, they got a sense that Jesus, he wasn't just another religious leader. Even his enemies, they accused his power of coming from Satan and not from God. They never denied his power. But they're all the names, they're all the answers that are floating out there in the ether. But then Jesus, he looks us in the eye and the tense changes. He asks, but you, who do you say that you are? This is a very different question. It's not in the abstract. It's not from other lips. It's not they, but you. Who do you say that I am? And it might be the most important question that you will ever be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter, he's read the signs, the God-like feeding of the people, In the wilderness, the healing of the sick, the walking on water, Jesus' understanding and authority of God's word. These were the signs of the time. That the time was here. This was the age of God's kingdom coming on earth through his Messiah. The promised one of the Old Testament who would lead and save God's people. The Son of Man is the Son of God. That's where all these signs have been pointing And Jesus, he says, well, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter, God has opened your eyes. Finally, someone can see what's right in front of them. But apparently, he still needed to sharpen his vision just a touch because then we read, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. But Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. You can't suffer from the Jewish authorities. You're the Messiah. Don't you understand who the Messiah is? He still couldn't see Jesus, he's both the powerful Lord and the weak and dying Saviour. It's like we have to have bifocals. If I have no idea if this analogy actually makes sense, but we have to see both at the same time if we're going to see him at all. So out of those two, Jesus being Lord of your life, Jesus being the Saviour, which is it for you? Which do you struggle to see? Do you struggle to see Jesus' authority as Lord over your life? Can you see ways that Jesus wants you to live, but you're happy enough to go your own way, do your own thing, until you're forced to have a wake-up call from that? Are you living in a way that you know is wrong, you know it's hurtful to others, you've actually heard the call from Jesus to turn from that, but you're still going to live in that. You're still unwilling to change. Or when life seems out of control, do you instinctively feel hopeless like no one is in control, like no one can help you? Do you struggle to see Jesus as your Lord? Or do you struggle to see Jesus' compassion as your Saviour? 
Do you live a good moral life to try to earn favour with God? When you sin again, do you find it hard to see how God might have time for you? Or do you find that your heart is close to people who don't look or think like you? Because if you don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life, then you can't see Jesus clearly. And if you don't understand what it means for Jesus to have died for your sin, to be your saviour, you can't see Jesus clearly. And if you recognise that you, please make it your goal this week to be honest about that with a Christian, a wise Christian friend. Uh, But Jesus, he turns and he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. These are pretty strong words, uh, but they aren't arbitrary. Because if you think back to earlier in Matthew's Gospel in uh, the temptation in the wilderness, this is exactly how Satan tempted Jesus then. He tempted Jesus by saying, you can have the kingdom without the cross. And of course, Jesus, he was tempted to have this cup taken from him by Satan and by Peter, but he knew it was his to drink. He knew that he had to drink this cup. He couldn't be tempted from it by Satan, by Peter, Because this is who the Messiah was and who he had to be. The one who would suffer and die for the wayward, for the weak, for the fearful, for the lost, for people just like us. This is where all the signs have been pointing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who was heading to the cross. Where he would die for us, for our sin, for all the ways that we've failed to love God and to love others. All the ways that we've been blind to God's desire for the world. But if you feel like this is something you're just starting to see, you're just starting to get, remember, flesh and blood can't reveal this to you. A tortured, dying Jewish man hanging on a plank of wood, that's who we worship. That's the power of God to save you, to give you eternal life, all the riches from Jesus' hand. It's little wonder that Peter couldn't see it. The Father had to reveal this to him. How could any of us come to that conclusion on our own? And yet it's the only way to truly see the world through this glorious lens. So think back to that quote that we opened with from Hubert Selby Jr. about how he had such a sense of inner darkness that that coloured everything he saw in life. Well, here's another quote from the other side of that spectrum. Uh, from C.S. Lewis, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When our eyes are open, we don't just see Jesus. He's the light of the world who helps us to see everything else as it truly is. When Jesus is providing abundantly for us right in front of us and we still struggle to trust him, When Jesus is giving us every reason to trust him and we still want one more sign. When we're tempted to follow Jesus for his power and not into his sacrificial love. Jesus calls us to look to him again, to call on his name, to see the world as it truly is. And he will begin, if we ask him, to change our very heart. So that we will see the entire world differently, we'll be able to see his face and to see his hand at work all around us. Let me pray that for all of us now.
Heavenly Father, wherever we feel need, help us to see your goodness. Wherever we struggle to see your goodness in our lives, please give us sight. Wherever we are walking in darkness, please open the curtains, bring the light of Christ into our lives. Wherever we struggle to see Jesus' power, help us to know that he can do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Wherever we struggle to see Jesus' compassion, help us to know the depths of his sacrifice and his love for us. We do ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to call the band up for a final song, then I'll get back up and see if you've got any questions for me.